0: Kiwi making Kiwi better off. We've all been here before. We realised immediately after the Second World War we were going to have to massively increase the size and the power of our electricity network. Because electricity, back in the 1940s and 50s, was a way to... Turbocharge your economy. It gave all sorts of amazing devices to factories, to homes. It was the way to really get your economy firing on all cylinders. Just electrify everything. And the politicians and the businesses and the power boards all knew this in the 1940s and 50s. It was something that everyone talked about. How do we electrify New Zealand? And so it happened there was an enormous build-out of all of our electricity networks. We built really big dams, huge dams, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And for those over the age of 40 or 50, you probably will have heard of these big projects, things like Think Big. And if you're quite old like me, you may have heard even of the Manapuri power station right down there in Southland, which actually was the start of New Zealand's great environmental movement. The reason we had the Values Party, which eventually turned into the Green Party. They are the big projects that allowed New Zealand over the nineteen. 19- 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the early 80s to double the size of our electricity industry. It underwrote a massive improvement in our economic performance and was the main game in terms of investment for our government. It was controlled by the government. Remember, this is a government where taxes were over 50% for anyone who was earning a decent amount of money. The government was a really big deal in our economy, much bigger than it is today, for example, now we have a government that takes taxes that are worth about 30% of GDP. Back then, it was more like 50 or 60% of GDP, and the decisions were made largely in Wellington with a small bunch of politicians and bureaucrats, with the Ministry of Works, and with the Electricity Department, and a group of power boards. They were all working in tandem together, and they were using government money, taxes, and a little bit of debt to essentially take money away from consumers in the form of taxes and invest it in power stations and networks. And we all agreed that was probably a good idea. Until we didn't. Back in the mid-1980s, we decided no more of these Think Big projects making a mess of our landscape. We'll introduce the Resource Management Act. That'll stop that. And it did. So we haven't really built any of these big projects since then. In fact, our electricity industry doesn't produce much more electricity now than it did when Think Big ended and when we decided we weren't going to build any more of these projects. And of course, the industry has changed dramatically dramatically. No longer is it run by the state and where you could make decisions about these big projects with one or two people. Now we have individually owned electricity distribution networks, lines companies as we call them, and then we have a bunch, four or five are the main big ones, of so-called generator retailers. And for those of you who do pay the power bill and actually look at the name on the bit of paper or the email, we're talking here about Mercury Energy Meridian Energy, Genesis Energy, and the likes of what used to be called Trust Power. And these companies are are beholden to shareholders. And in the case of three of those big four, which includes Contact, three of those big four are 51% owned by the government. But the incentives are different. Way back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the government saw itself building infrastructure for the nation for a long time. And it didn't really worry too much about having high taxes or taking big chunks of people's salaries and investing it in national infrastructure. This was a different era when the aim of politicians and voters was to invest in the future to make sure that the kids, the baby boomers who were born after the war, had all of the stuff they needed. Things changed after Muldoon and the end of the 1980s, when we thought, "Well, we don't need to build any more big stuff. We've gone as much as we can with all of this investment. We don't need to do it. Well, things are different now. In this week's "When the Facts Change," we talked to John Hancock about the massive task ahead of us, which in many ways is just as big as the one we faced in the late 1940s. The task is, how do we double the size of our electricity industry in 30 years? How do we do that? Because we need to if we're going to decarbonize our economy and move to almost all renewable electricity. So all of those cars and trucks and boilers and dairy factories and boilers and various manufacturing operations, they will have to move to electricity. If we're going to not just achieve carbon zero, but actually avoid liabilities, under our international obligations, of up to, we discovered this week, $24 billion in carbon credits we'd have to buy in international markets. So there's a risk here that if we do nothing, we have a big financial liability. The issue, though, is who is going to pay, who is going to decide, and who is going to order us to put the chicken before the egg, to invest in all of these projects and all of this transmission? How are we going to do it? This week on When the Facts Change, we look at this task of doubling our electricity industry in an era when the ownership of all these assets are very dispersed, and when consumers and voters don't like politicians making big decisions about big spending or big licks of money that involve them essentially having to give it over in tax revenues to a government. This is a massive task, and there are many people hopeful that we can use new technologies and new markets, use solar panels, use microgrids, use real-time trading of electricity to do it, but ultimately this is going to be a, a task that we as a nation will have to take on and make decisions about, and we're not really set up to do it in the way that we were in the 1940s. That's this week on When the Facts Change. How do we double our electricity industry without a Ministry of Works or Robert Muldoon? Well, kia ora, and welcome to John Hancock, who is a long-time uh, observer, consultant, um, geek, On the electricity industry in New Zealand and thinks a lot and reads a lot and has a lot of experience in thinking about how we electrify New Zealand. John, welcome into When the Facts Change.
1: Uh, Kyoto banners and Kyoto listeners, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Uh, John, could you give us a sense of the scale of what's needed? to electrify New Zealand because if you looked at New Zealand from a distance, you think, oh, they're already electrified there. You know, got all those dams. They've got almost 100% renewable. They don't have a problem like us. We've got all these coal-fired plants. But mm, it might be a bit bigger than that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a it's a great question. Um, I mean, I suppose when people talk about electrifying New Zealand, I mean, what they're really getting at is we're we're trying to use renewable electricity to replace fossil fuels, it's a very easy way of um, reducing your emissions uh, in a way that doesn't really sort of affect people's lifestyles adversely. That's why electrification is such an attractive option. You know, like an electric car, it works just as well, if not better, than a petrol or diesel car. Uh, So it's not like you're taking a functional hit. Um, but, you know, in terms of e- e- electrification, obviously, we we already have an electrified country. You know, I mean, we use electricity for all sorts of things. But the journey that we're looking at taking, if we're really serious um, about um, trying to eliminate fossil fuels from the energy system to uh, as much as we possibly can, what we're really looking at doing is doubling the size of the electricity industry over the next 30 years. So... I mean, it sounds like a mammoth task, Bernard, but I think it's very similar to the journey New Zealand went on after the Second World War. So that's when we established the electricity industry that we had today. We had little sort of... um, you know, sort of, they're almost like little village networks um, beforehand. And then slowly we started tying them together. We established the national grid and we started to build this extraordinary set of uh, renewable generation infrastructure um, with the, the hydro dams um, uh, up and down the country. And I mean, that journey took New Zealand the best part of 30, 40 years. Um, but it wasn't impossible. I mean, everyone in the world was doing in the, in, in the industrialized world was doing this after the Second World War. I think it started off with sort of um, views about sort of uh, economic stimulus and recovery, um, and then became very much one of driving economic growth. There was this very close correlation between electrification and economic growth. I think the challenge going forward is a bit different. I mean, it's more about sort of getting (laughs) getting our emissions down but the the scale of the task it's very similar to that post war thing now the bit that's challenging i think for us as a country is that um that growth sort of finished in the 1980s so we haven't really seen any growth in the electricity industry really at all for the last 40 years so there's a lot of people um alive today who are adults who have absolutely no experience of what large-scale infrastructure development feels like, what it's like to have somebody putting pylons in your view when there weren't any pylons there before. Some people may have seen wind farms maybe turn up in their view, but it's not a common experience in a way that in that post-war period it was. You saw these amazing routes popping up all over the place.
0: So why do we have to double the size? Surely we've already got a network. Surely we've already got these dams and uh, in theory with Rio Tinto uh, and the TY Point smelter going away. Why do we have to double everything? Because we're not going to be doubling our population. Uh, you know, there aren't that many people with gas stoves or gas heating. Why are we going to have to double?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really about trying to replace the fossil fuels that we use for energy. So the fossil fuels that we use in New Zealand, the big three, are coal, natural gas and petrol. Um, So these are all, I mean, they're amazing energy sources. They're phenomenally concentrated. If you think about just how far you can drive a two-ton car on just one tank of petrol, that shows the energy density of this this resource. And uh, um, obviously, it comes with the environmental impact of both uh, the pollution that it creates, but in particular, the emissions that, um, that it produces. Um, so the the, the the challenge there is 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 switching from one energy um, uh, system to another, um, and and I suppose the point is that even though we have a large electricity industry, electricity is less than half of the energy that we use in New Zealand. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to replace the other half with well, not the whole of the other half, but quite a lot of the other half with electricity, because it's a very easy way of migrating away from fossil fuels. You know, there are some scenarios where it's possible to use other forms of renewable energy, you know, so if you're lucky enough to live on top of a geothermal field, you might be able to use geothermal fluids to heat whatever it is that you live in. I mean, people do this in Rotorua. Um, We've actually got a wood processing plant just outside Topol, which uses Uses geothermal heat as part of their drying process, but you can't do that unless you live in the right place. Similarly, you might be able to use wood, biomass, things like that as a source of energy to create heat, but you need a supply of wood and biomass. But the lovely thing about electricity is that if you're on the national grid, you can do that anywhere. So we've got this national grid that
0: was built after the war and we've got these uh, really big scale uh, renewable uh, um, production um, units, if you like, in the the grid. Uh, Can we simply use the existing grid and plug in some new power plants, if you like, renewable power plants, or are we going to have to do something different?
1: Um, I mean, it's it's a bit of both, really. Um, I mean, one of the things about networks is that the size of a network is what it's required to be able to do when it's at its busiest. So, in New Zealand, the electricity system is usually at its busiest on a really cold winter's night, just at the end of the working day, around four or five o'clock in the afternoon, when businesses are still working but when people are going home and starting to put the heating on, cook tea, stuff like that. So that is when we have our instances of national peak demand. And at the moment, the, um, uh, the capacity of the network is adequate to meet the sort of peak demand that we currently have. But if you go on the journey that I'm describing, where what we're looking at is electrifying about as much energy as we already use electricity for, then clearly the peak is going to be a lot higher. It may not be twice as high if if we can get it to increase by less than twice as much. We won't need the network to be twice the size, but it's certainly going to need to be bigger. But one of the opportunities we have, of course, with networks is that there's a lot of the time when the networks aren't very busy at all. I mean, the most obvious example is during the night. So, you know, during the night, people do use electricity, businesses do use electricity, but um, nowhere near as much as they do during the day. And in particular, nowhere near as much as they do in the morning and the evening. Those sort of shoulder periods. So,
0: John, how are we going to get people to move the electricity around both in time and maybe between places so that when all of us turn up at six o'clock in our Teslas and all plug into the plugs in our garages, we don't melt the network down?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's an old answer to that question, Bernard, and there's a slightly newer answer to that question. So the old answer to the question is what we've traditionally done with hot water heating. So a lot of New Zealanders use electricity to heat their hot water Um, They have a big hot water tank in a cupboard somewhere in the house that they've probably forgotten about, and the um, heating of the hot water is actually controlled by the local distribution company, so they will actively switch it. Well, allow it to to switch itself on at times when it doesn't make the peak a problem, Um, and this is a sort of. Um, benign dictator role that the electricity industry has played for years where you know they have your best interests at heart and um, in, in a sense you're giving them permission to mess with your hot water on the assumption that you're not going to have a cold shower and it's worked pretty well for a long time. Um, but obviously, electric cars are much, much more technologically sophisticated, and there's, uh, you know, probably more computer power in one Tesla than there was in the entire electricity industry in the whole country in the 1950s. Um, and uh, clearly, these devices are capable of, um, you know, controlling their own charging behaviour very um, sophisticatedly. So, the, the economists, you're an economist, aren't you, Bernard? So, the uh, economists like you would say the answer is that you use prices. Um, and again, this isn't a particularly new idea, um, but we're already seeing it. Quite a lot of the electricity retailers are offering special price plans that they're saying are for EV drivers but they're actually just day-night plans. They're just saying to people, if you use electricity after nine o'clock at night and before seven o'clock in the morning, it's cheaper than if you use it the rest of the time. And you know, some of them have even more price periods and it's very complicated. But that's quite a simple message, right? So it's sort of saying, don't charge your car when you get home from work, put it on a timer and charge it In the off-peak period, and that's easy. And if you can do that, it makes an enormous difference because you're not contributing to this peak I was talking about. Um, And of course, the other benefit of doing that, the question you asked me was about network capacity. You were asking me about the national grid. But the other um, uh, thing that we have a lot of is renewable generation. I mean, a lot of countries aren't in the same position as us. They've got lots of coal and gas-fired generation. And so, if people use electricity, electricity in the middle of the night there, they're still using coal and gas because that's the form of the generation. But with us, the renewable generation might get quite quite busy during these peak moments, obviously, because that's when we're at maximum demand. But we have an awful lot of surplus generation capacity during the night. So again, you know, it makes just as much sense to encourage people to charge their EVs, heat their hot water, um, run the dishwasher, do the washing in the middle of the night. Um, And over time, I suspect what we'll see is that this pricing will get much more um, targeted. You know, instead of it being nine at night till seven in the morning, it might pick out other periods. But I don't think we're going to expect, you know, joe public to um, have to deal with that it's going to be the technology that's dealing with that so you'll just instruct the car to charge when it's cheap and you know you make it as easy as possible it's not going to be uh, a, a thing that we're having to switch things on and off ourselves
0: when the facts change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Because a lot of uh, consumers, the people who at the moment are um, not thinking that much about their electricity, may think about it a lot more if they have an electric car and they add in a whole bunch of devices that they previously, um, uh, you know, might be an electric lawnmower or whatever it is, are going to have to think about this. Are there solutions or um, market systems overseas where lots of small players can get together in maybe a virtual network or maybe in a microgrid which um, helps solve these problems, creates some scale so that uh, you, know, you get some of the benefits without everyone having to check their devices every five minutes and try to second guess what the price
1: is? Yeah, it's, it, it's, I'd say it's very early days, there are um i mean there are scale economies in the electricity industry as well uh which you might get me to talk about later on but to answer your question, I think you've had my friend Margaret. Cooney from Octopus on the podcast before. So Octopus is a very interesting retail business. They started off life in the UK market, which has quite a similar sort of design to our one. Um, But it's obviously a lot bigger. But they've now expanded all over Europe. And they've been doing quite a lot of work to try and equip their customers with technology to allow them to participate more actively in the electricity market by allowing stuff to be turned down or turned off when it's expensive and in some cases where they have their own solar generation or their own batteries by allowing them to trade that into the market when it's really valuable Um, but it's still pretty small scale by comparison with the active demand management by really large industrial customers, which, as I say, is pretty common practice, and meeting demand by building large-scale renewable generation in, in the future. At the start of the interview, I was saying the size of the challenge that we're facing is doubling the size of the electricity industry in the next 30 years. So, You know, our electricity system has what the nerds call an installed capacity of about nine gigawatts of generation. So that's the amount of energy at peak that all the generation plants in the country can can produce. And um, everybody disagrees about what it'll be in 2050. But, you know, this doubling thing, the numbers that the forecasters are coming up with is sort of in the 20 gigawatt number. Um, Now... At the moment, we hardly have any solar generation in New Zealand at all. And all the forecasters are predicting that we will have quite a lot of solar by 2050. They're all predicting that we'll probably have something like six gigawatts of solar. So six gigawatts of solar, that's a lot compared to what we have today. So that's 2 thirds of the amount of generating capacity that we currently have in New Zealand. Yeah, So it's a very big number. But what they disagree about is about how much of that solar is going to be on people's houses and how much of that solar is going to be in a farm, you know, where you have a paddock with loads and loads and loads of solar panels all lined up next to one another. And um, I, I was digging out. So our lovely um, national grid owner, TransPower, They've done some very nice futuristic forecasting, Um, and in their forecast, they reckon that the majority of the the solar that they're expecting to see, this, this nine gigawatts of solar in 2050, they think that the majority of that will be distributed, so that'll be on people's roofs. But last year, a very um, famous global consulting firm, the Boston Consulting Group, did a great report about the future of our electricity system. And they made the same prediction about solar, but they reckon it's the other way around. They reckon that the majority of the solar is going to be utility scale. And the reason for that is that there are enormous scale economies in building solar because the cost of a solar plant isn't the cost of the panel. It's the cost of the panel and the cost of installing it. And installation costs are more than half the cost of installing a solar project, And obviously, you can imagine that putting some solar panels on the roof of a house costs an awful lot more than installing the same number of solar panels as part of a very large solar farm. So the cost per kilowatt of utility solar is dramatically lower than the cost per kilowatt of distributed solar.
0: I just wonder, though, um, with the constant fall in the price of solar panels and the fall in the cost of batteries, although it's not falling as fast as the price of panels, that at some point the cost lines for microgrids might cross over and then be cheap enough to make it more worthwhile than the big scale uh, uh, type, either solar farms or wind farms or uh, geothermal or uh, everyone seems to have given up on on hydro given um, uh, the RMA.
1: Yeah, and, and 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 in a lot of cases, it makes perfect sense to have your own on-site generation. So, if um, – I mean, the best example would probably be if you have a warehouse or a factory uh, and you use a lot of electricity during the day and you're somewhere sunny and you've got a big, fat, flat roof, you might as well just put solar panels on it because you will generate your own electricity and instead of buying it from the national grid, you'll only incur the costs of um, – the, uh, the installation that's sitting on your roof. Um, and that is cheaper than grid-reticulated electricity. The problem for homes is that unless you're at home during the day, you're usually generating lots of electricity when everyone's out. <laughs> And you want to use electricity when the sun isn't shining. So you still have to be on the national grid. You still have to be on the network. You still use electricity that you're not generating yourself. And in some cases, you may be selling, effectively selling, the electricity you're generating when there isn't very much demand for it. you know. As I said earlier on, there's lots of demand for electricity in the evening, and there's lots of demand for electricity in the morning, and there's quite a lot of demand for electricity during the day, but not as much. So it's this um, big decision you have to make is, are you prepared to spend enough money in your solar or your wind and the batteries to store it to allow you to actually cut yourself off from the national grid? Because if you do that. <laughs> then the thing you're talking about applies. But if you're not confident enough in the reliability of your solar and battery installation and you want to stay connected to the national grid, then the lines don't cross over because you're not losing the costs of the national grid. All you're doing is you're adding a whole bunch of other costs to allow you not to use electricity that's being generated somewhere else.
0: I wonder, though, you talked right at the beginning about how... um, After the Second World War, we had this huge task. How do we um, massively increase our electricity production and build out this network? And we know there's going to be benefits from that. Um, Suddenly, a whole bunch of towns and cities will be connected. They'll be productive. There'll be all these devices that can use this electricity. The economic growth that electric networks produce is so obvious that it makes sense for a government to effectively subsidise and organise and order the creation of this. So we saw the Ministry of Works and we saw the electricity departments (laughs) do all of this. We saw the Think Big projects. No RMA between 1945 and 1991. How are we going to double our electricity industry, when we have an RMA and we have governments, both central and local, which have no interest in, you know, having very high tax rates and very high debt to fund these big projects? Who's going to pay?
1: The philosophy we've had in New Zealand since the late 1980s, early 1990s, is really to try and get the government out of the industry as much as possible, and to try and attract just regular investors into the industry, and to use their money <laughs> to build power stations um, and. When power stations get to the end of their lives, replace them to maintain the power stations, to pay for the fuel, um, and to do all the things you need to do to to create power. And it's it's been pretty successful. You know, we haven't – we've got pretty close, but we haven't had examples where there hasn't been enough generation in New Zealand. And there's an awful lot of investment capital in the world looking for a home at the moment. So, you know, provided that investors are confident that they're going to make a sensible return on their money – you know, that will that will continue to be the case. There's a sort of chicken and egg thing there though, isn't there? That as I said, really from sort of 1980 till about five years ago, the electricity industry hasn't grown at all. So we ha- we had enough power stations to serve all the electricity use that we had. So if anyone built a new power station, then someone else wasn't going to be generating electricity so there was this sort of i often describe it as like an elizabethan dance where all the generators dance around one another and when their plants get old and expensive they'll take them out of service at exactly the same time that a newer more efficient piece of uh, generation equipment joins the dance but it's been very orderly um because nobody wants to lose their shirt. Nobody wants to invest in a multi-million dollar power station if the risk is it's just going to sit there and not get used. Now, as we enter this growth phase that I'm talking about, this uh, doubling of the size of the electricity industry. Obviously, we're going to need to add new power stations to the mix. But we're only just getting into this. So there have been some very exciting examples of large um, food processors. decommissioning their coal boilers and replacing them with electric boilers. And these are absolutely enormous users of power. They're so big that they need an entire renewable power station to power them. And what we have seen is generators working to bring these generation projects to market at the same time as these big new loads electrify so there is some evidence that it's beginning to happen and it's not just the incumbents you're talking about the the sort of big five vertically integrated retailer generators just over the last couple of years, we're starting to see new investors, in particularly new investors with new technologies, so it's particularly solar investors, entering the market, signing connection agreements with Transpower and the local distribution businesses, and actually building large-scale solar farms. But these are not the same people who've built power stations in the past. So, you know, the fact it hasn't been happening isn't necessarily a sign that it's all terribly awful. It might just be a sign that it's been a static environment, but the more important thing is, but what's going to happen as we see this growth beginning to happen?
0: So, is there an opportunity for us to build either a bunch of solutions, a portfolio of you know batteries of of ways of dealing with things, being able to turn off pot lines or be able be able to you know create. Little batteries here and there, or maybe even one big hydro battery, which is being talked about at Lake Onslow.
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, it's been talked about a lot, but the the most important work was a report that the Interim Climate Change Committee wrote about five years ago. So this is the predecessor of our Climate Change Commission, and they did a deep dive on what they called accelerating electrification. So they told the story I've been telling you today, the story about just how, how, how easy it is to reduce emissions in the energy sector by using electrification where possible, But they had a specific chapter in this report, and it was called Managing the Dry Year Issue. and to summarise a very sophisticated piece of work by a lot of very smart people, they said, it's really hard. And we don't really know what the right answer is, but it's hard enough that you need to start looking. But the one thing that they did do is they worked out how much it would cost to manage the dry year issue with normal lithium-ion batteries. And it was something like a 100 million times more expensive than it would to use hydrogen, biomass, pump storage, name your favorite solution. Because lithium-ion batteries are really good for storing electricity for a short period of time. They're very good for storing electricity for a day or two. Um, But they're expensive, and holding... (laughs) three months' worth of electricity for the, you know, uh, a fifth of national demand in lithium-ion batteries would be paralyzingly expensive. That's not a good idea. Um, And they looked at a lot of other technologies, and they said, well, you know, none of these are particularly sort of um, well-proven for something like this. So pumped hydro, this is where you um, have a lake at the top of a hill and a water source at the bottom of the hill, and when... Uh, this middle of the night thing I was talking about, when there's more electricity generation than we need, uh, you pump water up to the top of the hill. And then when you're short of electricity, you let it go and generate electricity. So that's been used for years to deal with short peaks in demand. So in the UK, they famously have a hill in North Wales that does exactly this. And that's used to power the country through the tea break in a football match when everybody gets up off the sofa and goes and switches on the kettle and you have a surge in national demand. But that's really different from getting through a three-month dry year phase in New Zealand. So, the size of pumped storage scheme that you'd need in New Zealand would be something like 100 times bigger than anything that's ever been built anywhere in the world. But the nice thing is, it's a very well-known technology. It definitely works. um, And it's not particularly sort of revolutionary. It's just big. Um, whereas a lot of these other technologies, they're a bit unknown, right? So, you know, we know about burning coal to generate electricity. Uh, we're a bit less sure about burning wood to generate electricity at that scale, a bit less sure about burning torrified biomass, a bit less sure about burning biodiesel or burning hydrogen. But these are, all, these are all options as well, maybe, you know, building a geothermal power station and only ever using it when you're short. I mean, they technically they could all work, um, but you know, there's a sort of cost-risk equation here, and the trouble is. The thing that we know works and which is still quite cheap is burning gas and coal. But if you're really serious about your emissions, um, you've either got to capture and store those emissions, which again is a very immature technology that you know, we're, we're still grappling our way through, or you have to stop burning gas and coal and find another way of doing it. So that's, that's why the industry is having this sort of very tense conversation at the moment about what the right answer is, because none of the solutions are cheap, um, none of them are risk-free, uh, none of them are easy.
0: <laughs> and, and just, just finally, um, how confident are you that we're going to make the right decisions to be able to get anywhere near net zero um, by 2050, or more importantly, be able to you know, double our electricity industry um, within that 30 years? Uh, given that, as you say, you know some of the decisions are going to involve multiple billions of dollars and it turns out politicians and voters don't don't like making those sorts of decisions they get nervous about cost blowouts and you know it's very easy to say this is a this is a a, a, a mega project that's going to blow out so we shouldn't shouldn't do it how how confident are you um that we can
1: get there well I mean Going back to where we started, you know, we did manage to do it after the Second World War. What we're proposing to do is no different. Um, And the technologies are much better these days. um, And we're better at doing these types of engineering projects because we've had nearly 100 years worth of experience where they'd only had 50 years worth of experience back then. And certainly in terms of investment, as I said, there's no shortage of money to invest in this, you know, and... Possibly the you know, the, the the question is, well, is there any reason that international investors wouldn't be prepared to invest in stuff like this? And, you know, I think so long as we keep our eye on that, there's no reason that we'll be short investment, because we're a tiny country by comparison with the rest of the world. If you think it's going to be hard here, go talk to the Americans about how hard it's gonna be to decarbonize their electricity system, which is a bazillion times bigger than ours is. Um, so um uh, the 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 question is about the impact on prices Bernard so the reason politicians are nervous i think isn't because the government might have to invest some money in some things it's because when it goes through the sausage machine voters are going to have to pay for things now it doesn't matter who spent the money in the first instance, whether it's the government or whether it's a private investor, it's that, you know, in order to put money into something, um, unless you're a charity, you are going to expect to get your money out at the end of the project and through the project, through depreciation, and you are going to expect to earn a normal rate of return on that investment. But if you double the investment that you've made in the industry, then the costs are going to double. But the opportunity is not to spend any money on fossil fuels. So um, if you have an electric car, you're starting to see this, right? So electric cars are expensive, but they're very, very cheap to run. So my electric car costs me about $2 to fill, yeah? Most people's cars cost them, depends how big the tank is, but let's say 100 bucks to fill, yeah? And I get 420 kilometers range on my tank. Maybe you get a few more when you spend 100 bucks. So maybe the equivalent is it cost me 3 bucks to, to fill up my tank. Yeah. Um, and I've only got one car. So I never spend any money on petrol at all. And that's the opportunity. If you're not spending any money on natural gas at all, if you don't get a natural gas bill, even if your electricity bill is twice as big, but you spend nothing on petrol and you spend nothing on natural gas then suddenly a much bigger electricity bill doesn't look so bad. The problem is if you're still spending the same amount of money on everything else and all that's happened is your electricity bill's got bigger. That's the thing the politicians are nervous about. John, thank you very much. Uh, John Hancock there, um, an
0: electricity geek, uh, but also uh, (laughs) a consultant and and experienced at looking at this. John, thank you very much for um, geeking out on electricity with me. It was great.
1: It's been a great pleasure, Bernard. Thanks.
0: When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment?